Heavenly Father, as we quiet, quiet in our hearts this evening, we do thank you, Lord, for the, the pleasure and privilege and honour of bringing you praise and worship from our hearts. And there is no one more worthy of our praise, and there is no one worthy of our worship but thyself. And we come this evening to learn more about your Son, the Lord Jesus, and to look into the pages of your Holy Word. And we're here not because this meeting has been arranged, not because we ought to be, not because we're here from habit, but we're here because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we want to know more about him. And we want to love him more. We pray, Lord, that our affection for the Lord Jesus Christ would grow. We pray, Lord, that our love for a world which is passing away would diminish. And we pray that our grasp and our grip on Christ and our appreciation of him would grow. We do pray, Lord, that we might have a fresh vision of him, especially as we think about his return in glory that's yet to come, Father. And Lord, we thank you for the certainty of your word, for its clarity, its truth and its power. And we do pray that we would have ears to listen tonight and that we would be obedient listeners tonight to the word of God. So we pray that all that is said and now would bring honour to the Lord Jesus Christ and that he would be the preoccupation of our hearts and of our minds tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Well, as has been intimated, I'd like to speak to you tonight about the return of the Lord in glory. The return of the Lord in glory. Very often, and rightly so, and completely understandably, we focus on the next event in the prophetic program, which is, of course, the rapture of the church. And that is an event which could be at any moment. We understand from the scriptures that this meeting could be the last Christian meeting that any of us ever attend before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, because his return could be this evening to come to take those who know him and love him home to heaven, according to 1 Thessalonians 4 and the promise of the Lord in John 14 and other places we could go to as well, this promise of the rapture to come, that we've been delivered from the wrath that is to come. But I would like us to just take our eyes and focus them on a little further in God's program of redemption onto when the Lord Jesus Christ himself is going to return to this earth to establish his kingdom. So let's turn please to begin with to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 24. Uh, We're going to uh, centre our thoughts to begin with in Matthew's Gospel and chapter 24. This is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, What's part of it anyway, it runs um, for quite a while in Matthew's Gospel, uh, the Olivet Discourse, and it's called the Olivet Discourse of course because it takes place on the Mount of Olives takes place on the Mount of Olives. And I want you to remember that. I want you to to store that away in your mind. This is the Mount of Olives because the geography matters as it does so often in Matthew's Gospel. Here we are on the Mount of Olives. And let me read from verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. And God will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Just a short extract there from the Olivet Discourse. 
I would like very simply and um, hopefully relatively briefly tonight to look at this amazing subject and a complex subject, no doubt. I'd like to look at it under four sort of simple headings really to think about the return of Christ in glory. What does it mean? This is going to only really scratch the surface and so I hope that tonight uh, will, will be uh, an appetizer, if you like, for further study on your own part in the Word of God about this amazing subject. So firstly, the return of the Lord in glory is a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ, that's point number one. Number two, it's a rescue for God's people Israel. A rescue for God's people Israel. So a revelation of Christ, a rescue for God's people Israel. Thirdly, a reckoning for God's enemies. A reckoning for God's enemies, human and spiritual. And we'll get to that in a few moments. A reckoning for God's enemies. And lastly, and not least, the reign of the Messiah King. The reign of the Messiah King. So the revelation of Christ, the rescue of God's people Israel, a reckoning for his enemies, human and spiritual, and the reign of Christ established. You don't need to turn there, it's just for one verse. I want to turn you, um, well I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 1. From Revelation chapter 1, just to establish something important here. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ... Which God gave him. So primarily this information was given to Christ by God. To show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Information about the future given to Christ by God. Given by Christ to the angel. Given by the angel to John. And it's all about Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word is the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. The uncovering of Jesus Christ. I remember um, when I was a wee boy I used to go to Edinburgh uh, to uh, my grandma and granddad's house there in Collington in Edinburgh and he had paving slabs in the back garden. But they were just laid on the grass. They weren't cemented in or they weren't in gravel. They were just laid on the grass. And me and my cousin Athel, we used to go and we used to lift the paving slabs because they were loose. And when you lifted the paving slabs, all of the insects and beasties would scurry off into the grass because they didn't like the light. And I often think of that when I think of that verse, men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. As soon as the light was shed in, then they all scurried off into the undergrowth and into the bushes. But it's an uncovering. An uncovering. And there's coming a day when sin will be uncovered for what it really is. You know, we live in a society, don't we, where sin is packaged up as something positive. Sin is packaged up and dressed up as something desirable, something good. And we live in a society and a culture where that which is evil is good spoken of. And so we are surrounded by lies and deceit, all orchestrated, of course, by the God of this age, by the Prince of the Power of the Air, who is in opposition uh, to all that God is. But Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 makes it very clear that this is primarily a revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's where I want to start, with point number one, that his coming in power and glory is a revelation of himself, a revelation of Christ. And I think that's important because... There are sometimes two types of Christian when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to the end times. I'm sure you all know what I mean. That there are those who never talk about it. There are those who never talk about it. And then there are those who never talk about anything else. 
They never talk about anything else. And we don't want to fall into either of those camps, do we? We want to accept the whole counsel of God, to be interested in every part of the Bible, and not to hide away from difficult parts of the Scripture, but rather to enjoy them and to embrace them, and yet, of course, to hold everything in proportion. And so when we look at the details of something like the return of the Lord in glory, we could get swamped, we could get lost in all of the details. And yet we need to remember that primarily it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He is at the very centre of it, uh, the glory of his person. We're going to be thinking, of course, increasingly in the coming um, couple of weeks about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus and his first coming. This was hinted at by Jordan. Think about his coming into the world in humility, in obscurity, in poverty. And we know, of course, that there's coming a day, the day that we're thinking about this evening, when he's going to come uh, in precisely the opposite way. He's going to come as king, going to come as sovereign, going to be recognised, going to be seen for who he truly is and recognised. We're living in the day that was described in our first hymn. Our Lord is now rejected and by the world disowned. But there's coming this crowning day that we're talking about this evening. So as we think about the, the birth of Christ and how it relates to the second advent of Christ, I want us to turn back to Luke's Gospel, please. To Luke's Gospel and to chapter 1. To Luke's Gospel and chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and um, I want to look at two sort of distinct a- aspects to um, what the angel says to Mary. Luke chapter 1 and some very familiar verses that will be read in uh, churches all over the country over the coming days. And behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And of course in Matthew's Gospel, uh, in Mark's Gospel rather, yes yeah, sorry, Matthew's Gospel, we read the extra detail that because he shall save his people from their sins. Behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now if we take that verse in isolation, Luke chapter 1 verse 31, we understand that that is to do with his incarnation. That is a Christmas verse if you want to put it like that. You will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That has already happened. That is historical. That is something that we're going to remember in the coming days. He was born, he was called Jesus, and he is called Jesus. But then verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now that's something quite distinct, isn't it? That's something quite different. We're dealing here with something altogether different. We're dealing here with something which has not yet been fulfilled in any sense. Has not yet been fulfilled. Is it true that when he came here to earth, that he was recognised as great? That he was recognised by most, of course, as the son of the Most High? And was he given the throne of his father David? And is he now reigning on this earth? No, we understand that the answer to that is no. And that's why we still live in the day of his rejection. That's why the vast majority of the people, the men and women around us, do not recognise the authority of Christ. We have the privilege of gathering together in local companies that recognise his authority. And we have the privilege and and the pleasure of bearing the knee to him now, uh, while we have that honour to do that. And yet the vast majority around us do not. So we have here something present, something past in fact now about Christ and his identity, but something future too, that there's coming a day when he will reign over the the house of his father David and reign over the people of Jacob. So let's bear that in mind. The, The Lord's first coming, the Lord's first coming, I would suggest to you, was in two stages. 
was in two stages. If you were to take the four Gospels in your hands, you would notice a difference between Matthew and Luke and Mark and John. If you were to ask Mark and John, just the, the Gospels, to ask those two Gospels, when did Jesus' ministry begin? When did his coming begin? They would take you to John the Baptist, they would take you to the beginning of his public ministry, the preparation for that ministry, and its commencement. But then if you were to ask Matthew and Luke, they would take you all the way back to his infancy. If you want to read Christmas passages, you've got to go to Matthew, and you've got to go to Luke. So there were two distinct beginnings, if you like, to Christ's ministry. There was his birth and his infancy, but we know so little about his infancy. We know so little about his adolescence. There are all these hidden years where so much was developing, so much was going on. And, and as Bible students, perhaps we, we sort of wish we could know more. You know, we, we, we long to know more about what Christ's adolescence was like. And yet we know all that we need to know. We, not, we know all that God has purposed for us to know. But then, of course, there was his public ministry, there was his baptism, and there was those first miracles, and the calling of the disciples, and the entrance, his, his entrance onto the public sphere, if you like. Two stages. And I would suggest, and I'm sure uh, we will all believe tonight, that his second coming too will be in two distinct stages. Not two second comings. I don't believe it's right to, to talk about two second comings in the future. I don't think that's right. But a second coming which is in two distinct stages, just as his first was. So turn with me to Acts chapter 1. To Acts chapter 1. And let's read. This is the ascension of Christ, of course. And we're going to read from verse 11. The angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then we notice, of course, that the geography matters again. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem. From where? From the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath stays journey away. So here again we're back at the Mount of Olives, back at the Mount of Olives and the Lord Jesus has ascended to his father's throne, ascended to his father's right hand and these men of Galilee are looking up into heaven and and waiting and watching and the angels come and say you know there's coming a day when he's coming again and he's going to come again to this very same spot, going to come again to the Mount of Olives. Now this is distinct from the rapture, this is a different event from the rapture. And we could spend the whole night talking about differences between the rapture of the church and his return in glory. But I just want to point out to you two very distinct differences. Two differences that are of supreme importance. And I don't need you to turn there uh, particularly, but I want to read you a verse from Revelation chapter 1 again. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. And it says this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Every eye will see him. Everyone will witness the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Now, how exactly that's going to happen, I don't know. How exactly it's going to be possible for every eye on the earth at one given moment in time to perceive, to observe the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory, I can't tell you. But certainly we live in a very globalised world, don't we now? If something could happen in Russia or China tomorrow, and you and I would know about it and we'd have seen it, and we'd have seen footage of it, and we'd know for certain that it had happened. 
Now whether or not that's related to this, I have no idea at all. But we will all, those on the earth, will all see this return in power and glory. That's number one, because the rapture is not like that at all. The rapture is not like that at all. Now some people call the rapture the secret rapture. I'm not so keen on that expression just because it's not found in the New Testament itself. But it is something which happens between the believers who are on the earth at the time of the rapture and Christ who is in the clouds and not revealed to the earth. It's not that the fact of the rapture is a secret. It will be a great shock to the world, a great shock indeed. But it's that Christ himself is not fully revealed to the earth at that time. That's the secret element, I suppose. So everyone will witness this event. The second thing is found in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3. So if we could turn there to 1 Thessalonians 3. This is the second. Now again, we could list many more, but I just want to focus you on these two. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll just read verse... um, Well, we'll read from verse 11 actually. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There's coming a day, of course, and again, it could be tonight, it could be tomorrow, when the Lord Jesus Christ will come for us, for his saints, for those who know and love him, and who are waiting for him, and who love him. And yet there's coming another day, a distinct day, when he's coming with us. He's coming with us to establish his reign. So these are the two distinctions I want to make, is that first of all, every eye will see him, and secondly, every true born-again believer will come with him. Now friends, I want just to emphasise the reality of this. We're not talking about theory tonight. We're not talking about just theology tonight, for theology's sake. We're not talking about um, just the eschatological details for the sake of it. We're talking about realities. These things are really going to happen. And one day the Lord Jesus Christ is really going to come to the clouds to receive us to himself. He promised it. And I believe it, and I know you do too. But it's really going to happen. It's not just theory. And if that's true, then this is also true. That one day we're going to return with Christ when he establishes his kingdom on this earth. My friends, that's absolutely amazing. That's absolutely remarkable that these things are really going to happen. This isn't just uh, fantasy. This is reality. So the revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the rescue of God's people. The rescue of God's people. And I'd like to turn you back to Matthew. Back to our chapter in Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. And I'm not trying to steal from the brother who um, is dealing with Matthew 24 when it comes. But I just wanted to use it to focus our thoughts this evening. Matthew 24. And let's read the first four verses. And this sets the context for the, everything that follows. The Lord has just lamented over Jerusalem. And then the chapter begins like this. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the close of the age. And Jesus answered them saying. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying I am the Christ. 
and they will lead many astray. And we could read on, but we'll stop there for the moment. So here's the disciples' question. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? Now just look down at your Bibles. I don't know if you have red-letter Bibles or not. But you'll be able to see in the page of your Bibles that the answer that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to this one question lasts lasts until chapter 25, verse 46. Now that is some answer to a question. That is some answer to a question. So the Lord Jesus obviously sees this answer as vitally important. And the narrative of the gospel slows right down to a snail's pace. And we now are able to hear every word that Christ gives in a long, detailed, specific answer to this one question from the heart and mind of the disciples. And now back to where we started. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. We the church, we the church will be absent We, the church, will be absent during the tribulation. Let me take you back to some verses that I think are very significant for this in this one chapter. Go back to verse 15. Verse 15 of this chapter. And here are some warnings. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now friends, we all come from different places. Rebecca and I live in Fife. Most of you will live in Aberdeen or Aberdeenshire. But none of us live in Judea. None of us live in Judea and we cannot flee to the mountains of Judea. So this is a warning which clearly is relevant for those answering the question, asking the question rather, but is not something that you and I can apply directly. We can't flee to the mountains of Judea. But then look on with me to verse 20. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Now friends, we don't live in a Sabbatarian country. We don't live in a country where Saturday is the observed Sabbath as it would have been in their understanding at the time. And so it wouldn't make a huge difference to us whether something was to happen on a Saturday or not. If you were to go to Israel, of course, though, if you were to go to Israel today and try and do things on a Saturday or or get business done in Jerusalem on a Saturday, you would find it impossible. And so these warnings that are given are specifically Jewish in their relationship. They are Jewish warnings for Jewish ears. Israel as a nation is in focus here. Israel as a nation. Look with me to verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. Now let me take you to Zechariah chapter 14, please. Zechariah chapter 14. And I want to return to the Mount of Olives again. But this time in prophecy. Zechariah chapter 14. And let's read from verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And here we have similar warnings. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal and so on and so forth. 
Here we are at the Mount of Olives again. The Lord Jesus Christ is returning to the Mount of Olives. His feet shall stand upon that physical, literal mountain when he returns to set up his kingdom. The revelation of Jesus Christ, but also the rescue of God's people, Israel, is in view here. God is faithful to his covenant promises, isn't he? And he still loves the Jewish nation, still loves the people of Israel, and has purposes and plans for them. I want to just think about them under two brief headings uh, tonight, which is repentance and regathering. Repentance and regathering. And for repentance, just look back one chapter to Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. Wonderful verse here. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I find these verses very uh, moving, brothers and sisters. And I remember um, when I had the opportunity to, to be in Jerusalem for a number of months, um, it would probably be about uh, seven years ago now, um, I had a wonderful time there. And on a Friday night, I used to go as an observer, as a Gentile observer, to a large synagogue in the Jewish quarter of, of Jerusalem called the Herva Synagogue, which had been destroyed a number of times in the Six-Day War and other wars, but had been rebuilt. And as a Gentile, you could go there and you could sort of um, observe what was going on. Very, very moving. But the first time I went, of course, everything was in Hebrew, as you'd expect. And I have to confess, I didn't understand very much of what was going on uh, there in the synagogue service. Um, Their services were not quite as planned as I was expecting them to be. uh, And to an outside observer, they seemed a bit random. You didn't know quite what was coming next. And so I thought, I want to have a way of understanding what's going on here. So I spoke to somebody at the end. And they said, well, if you go to that shop over there and ask for this particular prayer book and buy a copy, then you and it's got an English translation, you can go and bring it with you next time. And you'll be able to see what's being said and what songs are being sung. And I'm so glad I did, but I still got it. And I took that prayer book to the synagogue and um, sat down. And as I was observing the service, um, I was reading through what they were singing and what was being said liturgically by uh, the rabbis, etc. There's a very moving part, particularly, where they were singing. And they were singing all facing the front. And then somebody let out some sort of call. And everybody turned in their seats. And they sang in the opposite direction. And what they were singing was, Oh how we long for the Messiah to come. Oh how we long for the Messiah to appear. Words to that effect. I can't remember exactly the words. But that was the idea. Oh how we long for the Messiah. And I found it very moving, very profound, because I'm sitting there as a Gentile, somebody from Scotland, you know, a nation that God has never made a covenant with. And and I'm sitting there thinking, well I know him. I know him and I love him. And I wish I could tell you about him. I wish I could tell you about him. Of course, it's, it's difficult. To, and, and Jewish evangelism is notoriously hard and often slow and difficult. Um, but it was very moving to see that because, of course, there is coming a day when they will see him. And they will see him and they will realise that he is the very one. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one that we believe in today. He is the one that they have rejected. The one that they pierced and they will mourn. For an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There will be repentance. There will be repentance. But there's a wonderful verse that follows this. And it's the opening verse of the next chapter. On that day, 
There shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There will be a fountain opened. What fountain is being spoken of here? It's exactly the same fountain that you and I have been to. It's exactly the same fountain of God's mercy and God's grace expressed in Christ. They're going to see there the Christ that they rejected, the Christ that they pierced. And probably the overwhelming emotion, the overwhelming reaction is going to be one of crushing guilt. Crushing guilt. And yet there's going, they're going to find there limitless mercy. And they're going to find there this offer of absolute grace. That there is full and free forgiveness available for those who will repent. Isn't that amazing? And this is going to be national. A national repentance. Quite remarkable. But the other aspect of this too is regathering. So I'd like to take you to Ezekiel please just briefly. Ezekiel and chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. And verse 21. Halfway through verse 21. Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them all and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. Friends, all the covenant promises made to Israel, and of course we don't have time to even scratch the surface of those tonight, but all of the covenant promises, every single promise we read in scripture, in detail, to the letter, will be kept. Because friends, I'm sure we all agree on this tonight, that if God was to break a single promise that he made to the Jewish people, or to renege on a promise that he made to Israel, then what would be our confidence in believing in the promises that he has made to you and I in Christ? If God can break his promises, or if God can change the terms of his promises. Because of course there is a a teaching very common today, uh, very much in vogue today, very much popular and advancing. That the promises that God made to Israel really now apply to us in the church. And it changes the terms of the promises. Changes the terms. But of course what they never do then, what they never do, is take the curses is they take the curses that were given to Israel for disobedience and apply them to us as well. They never do that. They only take the blessings and appropriate them to the church. And it's so wrong. And it leads to such a a great misunderstanding of Old Testament prophecy. And I think of the character of God, fundamentally. Because he made promises to Israel and he will keep them. And he'll keep them to those to whom he made those promises. God is faithful. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. So he will work repentance in them. There will be a wonderful national turning to Christ, but he will also regather them. Regather them to their land. And of course there is a land in, 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 uh, in the world today called Israel. It's a political project, something that was uh, created uh, by the Zionist movement after the Second World War. And you can trace how it's been established and how it's been developed. And you can see God's hand in that. There has to be a nation called Israel for uh, prophetic events to unfold in the world according to the scriptures. But there will come a time when it will be a work of God. A work of God alone and he will gather all of his people back to Israel. And um, they're gathered, many of them in unbelief of course at the moment. But one day that will all change. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, the rescue of God's people. But there will also be a great day of reckoning. A reckoning for the enemies of God. The human enemies of God. 
The ungodly nations are going to be gathered in an anti-Semitic fervour, a fury against the nation of Israel in a coming day. We can see that bubbling already in human history. We can see it bubbling in the past and we can even hear it simmering now. An anti-Semitic fervour that will one day reach a sort of... um, a rabid zenith that it's never seen before in hatred against God's ancient people. Turn with me to the little book of Joel. Uh, Joel in chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. And let's read some very poignant verses here. As God invites the ungodly nations to come in battle against his people because he wants to bring them into judgment. Joel chapter 3 and from verse 11. Hasten and come, says God, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe, go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And then some very famous verses, multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw. They're shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Jehoshaphat means judgment, the valley of decision, that's, that's the name of it, the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision. And what decision is that? It's God's decision. God's decision, it's where God will judge the nations of the world because of their hatred of the people of Israel, which ultimately is really hatred of him and opposition to him. There will be a reckoning for God's human enemies, those who have arrayed themselves against him. But there will of course be a reckoning for God's spiritual enemies. And um, let me take you to Revelation again, please. Revelation and chapter 19. Revelation and chapter 19. We have here a remarkable vision of the Saviour. Revelation chapter 19. And just for the sake of time, we won't be able to read all of it. But let's read from verse 11 of Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war... His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is known is the word of God. He will tread, verse 15, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's coming a day when there's going to be a reckoning, not only for God's human enemies, but for his spiritual enemies. And over into the next chapter, we read about that. We read about the beast and the false prophet and Satan himself being thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw, this is Revelation 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. The human enemies and the spiritual enemies of God, there is a final reckoning for them coming. But just in the last few moments together, let's think about the reign of the Messiah Kings. We've talked about the revelation of Christ, 
We've thought about the rescue for his people Israel. We've thought about a reckoning coming for his enemies, human and spiritual. But there's a reign going to be established. A reign going to be established. Just remember back to Luke chapter 1 and verse 33. He's going to be given the throne of his father David. Now you don't need to turn there, but let me just remind you of one verse, a wonderful verse in the book of Daniel, chapter 2 and verse 44. Daniel is interpreting um, the, the vision of the man, Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And having gone through the kingdoms chronologically of the world, he then gets to verse 44 and he says this. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Friends, as we think about the reign of the Messiah King being established here upon planet Earth, There would be Christians perhaps tonight, or maybe even in our own minds we could be thinking, yes, but Ian, why is this important? Why is this important? How does this affect things now? How does this affect how I see Christ now? Well, for me, the most important, or the the clearest verse that that speaks to that is in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just turn you there for a moment. 1 Corinthians 15. And the Apostle Paul uh, just expresses this so beautifully clearly. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25. I'm going to read actually from verse 24. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's vitally important, friends, because there are those who would teach that we will bring about the kingdom. And that we will establish the kingdom. The church will grow and grow and increase and increase. And we will take over all the the spheres of human authority. Take over all the institutions of human society. And Christianize the world. And we will then present this kingdom back to God. Not at all. Not at all the picture that scripture paints for us. The picture here is that only Christ can do this. Mm. Only Christ can establish his kingdom. Only Christ can bring about the rule of God on planet earth. And then the next verse just so vitally important verse 25 for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death he must reign what we're dealing with here friends is nothing less than this the vindication of Christ the vindication of Christ he came to this world and he was rejected he came to this world and he was crucified he came to this world and he was disowned And unloved and hated and mocked and spat upon. And that can't be allowed to stand forever. That can't be allowed to stand forever. Because there's going to come a day when every eye will see him. And then every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. And they will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they'll have to bow whether they like it or not. Because this is the vindication of our Saviour. He deserves this. Why is the millennium so important? Why is the literal reign of Christ so important? Because he deserves it. It's his due that he should reign on this earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will that prayer that's been prayed by so many Christians, will that be answered? I believe it will be. You know, even in the church I grew up in, there was a confusion in my mind. If you'd asked me as a young Christian, um, you know, when I was just growing up in church, uh, what is the kingdom? I would have really struggled to answer that question. Is the kingdom something that's in our hearts? Is the kingdom something that we're trying to extend? Is the kingdom uh, something ethereal? Something that you can't quite grasp? 
Or is it something physical and literal? I've just been studying Colossians recently and two times in Colossians that the word kingdom is used in a spiritual sense. Workers for the kingdom. That we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Wonderful. There's a spiritual sense to the kingdom. And you and I are in the kingdom now if we are born again. That's absolutely true. But when we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I believe one day that will be truly answered and absolutely finally and fully fulfilled. And that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because he's going to rule with a rod of iron and set everything right and be vindicated publicly and finally. So friends, as we think about the implications then of this wonderful truth that the Lord is coming, it's going to be a revelation of Jesus Christ, it's going to be a rescue for his people Israel, the Jews, it's going to be a reckoning for all his enemies, human and spiritual, and he's going to establish his glorious reign for a thousand years. I just want to think about comfort and clarity and confidence just as we close. We live in a very um, tumultuous world and a very tumultuous time, perhaps more so than any of us have ever known. And it's good for us, I think, as believers to set our eyes on that far horizon of the Lord's return to put everything right. When everything around us seems to be absolutely crumbling in chaos. What a comfort to know that everything will be put right by Christ. Clarity. The clarity that the Bible presents to us of the return of Christ. I believe there has been an eroding of confidence, perhaps, in that clarity. That people have lost a bit of confidence in talking about in discussing and holding to a firm view of the Lord's return, the idea sometimes is, well, how can I possibly know? That's something for the experts. That's something for people who spend their lives studying this. How can I possibly know? I mean, there's so many views, and, and surely we just have to walk a middle road. I believe the Bible presents to us a clear picture that we can believe. I believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. It can be understood. God has given us this book not to mystify us and confuse us, but rather to encourage us and embolden us and give us a firm place to stand. So comfort and clarity. Important to be clear. And then lastly, this wonderful confidence that we can have in a God who keeps his promises. Cast iron guarantees of the promises of God. We can have confidence in this covenant-keeping God. So let's pray uh, together. Almighty God and dear Heavenly Father, we are so thrilled when we think about this day, this crowning day, this day when our Saviour is going to be publicly vindicated, this day when the silent lamb is going to be silent no more, this day when he's going to be recognised bowed before, given his place, given his due. And Lord, we believe this with all our hearts. And we understand, Father, the importance of this, that your son is going to reign. Your people, the Jews, are going to be rescued. They're going to repent and, uh, and be brought back to their ancient land. And those who have opposed you and continue to rail themselves in opposition against you, Father, they're going to be judged. And we as recipients of grace in Christ are so grateful, so thankful this evening that we are not destined for wrath. But rather the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to take us home before these dreadful events unfold. What a promise that is. What a kind and tender saviour we have that would come and take us home before these things unfold on the face of the earth. It's not a vain hope, Father. It's a hope based in the promises that your own son has given us and that we find written in your precious word. 
And so we thank you that we can have such confidence in your promises. We would be lost without that, Father. And we thank you, Lord, for the amazing prospect of returning with your Son to this earth, to rule and to reign with him. What an amazing prospect that is when we live such ordinary lives. We live such ordinary lives and yet there's coming a day when things will be far from ordinary. And the Lord Jesus Christ will establish his reign and his throne in Jerusalem. So Father, we thank you for these things. Help us to be expectant. And we know that the next event on the programme is when your son comes to take us home. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Amen. I wonder if we could maybe just sing uh, in closing bearing in mind what it is we're waiting for um, number 237 number 237 I am waiting for the dawning of that bright and blessed day when the darksome night of sorrow shall have vanished far away when forever with the saviour far beyond this veil of tears I shall swell the song of worship through the everlasting years